genocide and genocide prevention are some of the most complicated topics in all of foreign policy and international relations theory. Much of the details and discourse around genocide and genocide prevention are blurred and muddy. How do we define genocide? How do we prevent it? These are very tough questions, but here at Think Critical, we are devoted to asking them. I'm Joshua Miller. Welcome to our show. Due to us recording at home this week, audio quality may dip at times. Thank you for your patience and for listening to Think Critical. This episode is an investigation into genocide, specifically the causes of genocide, the definition of genocide, and ways to prevent genocide. We will start with the definition of genocide and we will move into R2P, or Responsibility to Protect a doctrine used in international bodies to allow for the violation of sovereignty in order to prevent genocide and mass atrocities. Then we will move into the personal obligation of people to prevent genocide. Joining us this week to teach about these things is Dr. Frank Schock of Concordia University who has helped to establish many of the international legal standards of genocide, and Greg Lung my co-host, who will be offering a counterpoint, hopefully, in many of our conversations. First, we must define genocide. So this we turn to Frank Chalk. Hello, Dr. Chalk. Uh, I'm Joshua Miller from the Think Critical podcast. Um, welcome to our show. Thank you. It's good to be here, Josh. My name is uh, Frank Chalk, and I'm a professor of history at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Um, I'm also the research director and co-founder of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies. The first question we have is, what is genocide? Really, in, under your definition, I guess under the UN's definition, what is genocide? How do we recognize what is a genocidal situation? The definition of genocide that most of us use today uh, is based on the 1951 United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. Uh, And it makes genocide a crime under international criminal law and also asks that every country bring the international definition of genocide, the UN definition, into its own domestic law. 
Uh, we find the definition of genocide uh, in Article 2 of the UN Convention. And uh, it defines f- five particular specific acts as acts of genocide. And uh, they have to be committed with a very clear intent and with a very specific set of aims. So Article 2 tells us that genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such, in other words, as a group. And notice it doesn't include political groups and it doesn't include social groups so like a class or like a like a like a party right correct they are excluded from the un definition and the five specific acts that have to be committed with intent to destroy one of those four groups in whole or in part are a killing members of the group b causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group c deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about the group's physical destruction in whole or in part. D, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group. And E, forcibly forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So that would sort of qualify what was done to the Aboriginals in Australia as a genocide? Uh, I don't think we have to go as far as Australia, Josh. Uh, we can look to the residential schools in the United States and Canada first. Those examples, I, I'd, I'd think you could say those aren't the typical examples of a genocide, right? So what is, in your opinion, the, like the, the most clear-cut example of a genocidal process? But let me also talk for a moment about the elements of the crime of genocide, which are listed very simply in Article 3, the following article of the Convention. And uh, these acts are genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, attempt to commit genocide, and finally, complicity in genocide. So... Uh, You may not be uh, able to complete your plans to perpetrate a genocide, but if you have attempted to incite people to commit genocide through direct and public incitement, that's also a crime. And it's a limitation on freedom of speech that is upheld in international and domestic laws uh, by many, many countries around the world. Uh, Also, you may not have accomplished the genocide, but if you conspired to commit it or attempted to commit it or were complicit in its planning, uh, you are still guilty of a crime under the Genocide Convention and can be punished for that. Well, let let me take us back to about 416 BC to ancient Athens and to the island of Milos inhabited by people who defined themselves as related to the Spartans during the Peloponnesian the Peloponnesian wars between Athens, Sparta and some of its allies 
Because the people of the island of Milos refused to pay tribute to Athens when the Athenians surrounded the island and landed an army on the island from their fleet in 416 BC, uh, they, the commanders of the Athenian forces threatened to kill all of the Melian men and to enslave all of the Melian women and children. And uh, they actually coined the phrase that might made right and that there was no morality and there were no ethics that prevented them from carrying out their threat if the Melians refused the protection money payments that were called tribute to the Athenian leadership. But in addition, their shrines were destroyed and every remnant of their culture was, was raised so that the very memory of Milos was extirpated. And it, if, it, if it hadn't been for Thucydides writing about them in his book on the Peloponnesian War, uh, we would barely know anything about them. So that's a classic genocide. Uh, and it was genocide committed as part of Athenian empire building. And it serves as a kind of template for some later genocides. For example, the Kaiser's Germany in the early 1900s, totally destroying the Herero people of German Southwest Africa to punish them for rebelling against German colonial settlement and the theft of the land belonging to the Herero and the mistreatment of Herero women by German men. Uh, the uh, German army uh, under General von Trotta drove the Herero into the Omaheke Desert, poisoned all the water holes, murdered any women and children from the Herero in the desert who tried to surrender to the German army and succeeded in killing about uh, three quarters of the 80,000 Herero who were alive at the beginning of this genocide. Between 1904 and 1907, the Herero effectively ceased to exist as a nation. And it's only because some survivors escaped to what today would be parts of modern South Africa and some of the countries around South Africa that we even have some Herero. And they did the same to the uh, people uh, who were neighbors of the Herero. Uh, today, we have a modern nation called Namibia, which incorporates the land that was part of the Herero kingdom, as well as other small kingdoms of those years. But the Nama people, as well as the Herero people, were decimated by the Kaiser's army in the early 20th century. And that was a classic genocide, not that, not that different really than the genocide inflicted on the people of Milos. Uh, 
and we have other genocides that are better known. Uh, one of the most famous uh, is the destruction of the Pequot people. Really, all of the American people in what today is part of the state of Connecticut uh, by the uh, Puritans of the Massachusetts Bay Colony in order to acquire their land and to drive the Pequot into extinction. Uh, basically, all the survivors of the attacks on the Pequot were enslaved and most of them were sold into slavery in the Caribbean. A few were sold into slavery among uh, proximate Indian nations of those years in New England. But the Pequot basically ceased to exist. I think by the 20th century, there were in the, in the 70s and 80s, in the, there were enough, maybe five Pequot extant who went on to found one of the biggest gambling casinos in the United States. Uh, and today they actually have a museum devoted to What the about addressing the Armenian genocide in Turkey? Uh, the uh, Committee of Union and Progress of the uh, new Turkish Republic, which came into being uh, starting in about 1909, six years later inflicted genocide on the Armenian people. Together with uh, perpetrating the genocide, uh, some of the successors of this extreme nationalist Turkish movement that I think did not represent the Turkish people as a whole, but just a political faction of that people, uh, went on to deny that they had done these things. So starting in the 1930s and 40s, the government of modern Turkey said, oh, we never did that. These people, these Armenians died as a result of World War I, just the way that many Turkish people died. Except that we, we have all the evidence we need to show that there was a concerted or systematic and organized and sustained attack not on an Armenian army, but simply on the Armenian civilian population, which killed as many as one million Armenians. Yeah, and even to this day, the Turkish government denies the genocide when nearly you know every other nation on the planet accepts that it happens. Well, it happened. It's a matter of like nationalism or national pride, so, you know. It's, it's very different from uh, what happened in Germany after the Holocaust, you know, where they sort of owned up to it. They paid rep reparations, unlike what the Turkish are doing, or they're denying it. Especially, uh, I wonder what your sort of thought line is on the Holocaust being used as the typical genocide. Yeah, just go on for a minute and say that the genocide that most people today know about and remember uh, and learn about in school is uh, Hitler's attempt and Germany's attempt to annihilate totally the Jewish people of Europe. And then if they had succeeded there to go on to conquer 
other peoples in North America and elsewhere and to destroy every single one of the Jews who lived outside of Europe as well as within Europe. Uh, and that is a classic genocide that originates with Nazi ideologies and the political philosophy that Hitler and the key intellectuals and uh, political and military leaders of the Third Reich brought to the table, with, which in part was one of the reasons why they launched World War II and invaded the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe and went on to kill at least six million Jews, according to the Nazi definition of who was a Jew. Uh, so can we get into the uh, why would countries deny historical genocides? Uh, I, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why countries that or countries would deny historical genocides probably is because a sense of nationalism or pride. Like I, I know Turkey is a very nationalist country and they're pretty famous for denying um, you know, denying the Armenian genocide because it's a sort of a point of national pride that there's this great country, they'd never do this. While in Germany, the people have like a less degree of enamorization with the content of the, the you know, the Germany and German history to the point where they'll, they'll, you know, they teach about the Holocaust because they sort of feel like a responsibility and shame because they they're not so enamored with this greatness of the German state. That's a, That's a really good question, Josh, uh, and I fully agree with what you said about the Turkish government. I'd like to say a word about it, uh, but I, I think there, as you would suspect yourself, I know, uh, there's much more to Germany's reckoning with its past that we can touch on lightly. Um, let's put it this way. I think the West by which I mean Western European countries, as well as North American countries, are fundamentally responsible for creating the conditions which lead today's government of Turkey to deny that Turkey or the Committee of Union and Progress government committed genocide against the Armenian people. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, back in the 19th century, Russia, France, Britain, and other Western countries increasingly characterized the Ottoman Empire as a barbaric empire led by uncivilized people to commit uncivilized acts. And they had in mind the Ottoman occupation of what we came to call Yugoslavia uh, after World War I and the Balkan Wars of the late 19th century uh, among Bosnia, Serbia, and, and Croatia, uh, but especially the Serbs against the Turks today there is what I would call a great sensitivity among uh, people in Turkey, and not, not just extreme nationalists, uh, in which they re have reacted against those charges 
And they deeply believe that if they admit to the to having ancestors who committed the crime of genocide against the Armenian people, they will suffer two consequences. First of all, it will strengthen the image of barbarism in the way people regard Turkey. And second of all, it will create an open door for the Armenian people to reclaim land that was stolen from them during and after the genocide. And there will be a demand for restitution, not only of territory and land, but also of the wealth that was confiscated from the Armenian people between 1915 and say 1923. Uh, As a result, There are political leaders in Turkey who appeal strongly to Turkish nationalism, who display a vested interest in denying that there was a genocide against the Armenians. Now, to round off this part of the episode, we turn to Greg Lung. Uh, hello, Greg. Hey, Josh. Um, so, uh, the first segment of our episode is about what is genocide and what are some great examples of genocide. Um, so, genocide is typically defined, as we've learned, by the UN uh, in Article 2 of its Declaration of Human Rights. Now, um, there's also like sociological definitions of genocide, which are more related to, um, you know, viewing the function of a of a certain group of people as more of a society trying to destroy a certain group of people rather than a certain set of steps or actions taken by a government that can be prosecuted. Uh, Greg, uh, how would you personally describe what genocide is to someone? Well, honestly, I feel like defining genocide is actually pretty easy. I usually stick with what the UN has. Um, Basically, any act committed by a government with the intent to destroy any kind of ethnic or cultural group Um, which is obviously not limited to actually inflicting bodily harm or killing members of the group. It also has to do with cultural eradication, like what you see in China with the uh, the Uyghurs. So in in a sense, genocide isn't killing. That's that's a crime. That's a crime against humanity, but genocide itself is the destruction of the group. And even if you were to simply break up all the group's members and scatter them across the uh you know the world of because they are all separated that means that they have been genocided uh yes and the and the un i think agrees with me on this if i search it up yes and um in part e of article two the UN lists forcibly transferring children of the group to another group as genocide. And that means that the United States, Australia, and Canada have all committed genocide at multiple points with their treatment of the native peoples of those countries, um, where it was 
oh, for a large period of history, it was less about the killing, although the United States and Canada certainly did kill a lot of natives. Um, I'm not so sure about Australia, though. Um, but also the continued, you know, placement, as we've learned, of um, native children into into schools that stripped them of their culture, uh, shifting members of the group into reservations, and other such actions that would destroy the cultural cohesion and identity of the group. And that's what China's doing today on an even more brutal scale in Xinjiang. Well, um, one, of, um, one of the most interesting examples I know of that often goes untold by historians, um, since I love bashing communists, is the decossification of Wait, decossackization of the Soviet Union by the Bolsheviks shortly after they won the Civil War. Um, thousands of Cossacks were slaughtered systematically in just a few weeks in 1919, and the constant oppression that the Cossacks underwent continued for years. You had forced migrations, um, mass executions, and overall, it was a classic genocide. But it's um it's something that's kind of washed away in history because of how the Soviets were able to were able to um be so secretive. Yeah, it's really amazing that like we didn't really know that much about the Holocaust until the Nazis fell, and so there's so much more uh, about the uh, Bolshevik era and about the killings they carried out that we don't know because uh, of how secretive they were. You know, it's the Iron Curtain. Now, a discussion of R2P and intervention doctrine. So, why do we have a responsibility to prevent genocide? And uh, what are some tools we can use to prevent genocide? I know that you helped to engineer R2P, or Responsibility to Protect, which is one of the primary doctrines the UN uses to justify genocide prevention. Um, so what are some of the tools, and why do we have a responsibility to utilize these tools to prevent genocidal acts? Well, I think my role was uh, at the periphery, <laughs> uh, but the, the people at the very center of the origins of the responsibility to protect were at the United States Committee for Refugees in Washington, D.C., where Berta Cohn and a Sudanese uh, diplomat, Francis Deng, uh, who came up with a very important and fundamental proposition. If we are to respect the sovereignty of nations, of states, it can only be if those states that exercise sovereignty over their people protect the lives of their people. In other words, they said, recognition of state sovereignty is understood to be based on the responsibilities of the sovereign. And one of the responsibilities of the sovereign is to protect the lives of the citizens of that state. But increasingly, in the case of Rwanda in 94, 
uh, in Burundi in earlier in 1972, and in East Pakistan in 1971, and in a number of areas of the world, um, states were violating their responsibilities, were abrogating their responsibilities, and were not protecting the lives of their citizens. Even worse, states were organizing systematic mass murder directed against part of their citizenry. And Francis Deng and Roberta Cohen said, when they do that, states lose the protection of sovereignty. And the international community has a responsibility to protect the unprotected citizens who are suffering state-organized mass murder. Our view is that permitting crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, war crimes, and genocide is against the national interest of most states on the face of the earth because these mass atrocities create huge outflows of refugees that are very difficult to assimilate and integrate. So I think it's in the national interest of all states to try to prevent genocide. But it is also the moral thing to do, yes. In my view, uh, preventing genocide is not a conservative or liberal or neoliberal project. It's not a political project per se. Uh, it's a project to advance the national interest of the world's peoples. Each state is responsible for protecting its populations from mass atrocity crimes like genocide. That's the basis of sovereignty, right? And that, yeah, and th- that without, if a state doesn't do that, it is not entitled to have its sovereignty respected by other states. And in the absence of protection of its citizens, the international community through the United Nations has a responsibility to use all of the means, peaceful as well as the tools of violence if necessary, under chapters six and seven of the United Nations Charter to protect the citizens of that state from atrocity crimes. And the Security Council has the responsibility of initiating collective action to protect citizens under attack by their own government. This is all to be done uh, based on the evidence that's produced before the Security Council, before the Organization of African Unity and other regional organizations. Uh, And it is not to be used in cases where it clearly could not work. For example, it clearly could not work against Russia. It clearly could not work against China. It clearly could not work against Britain, France, Germany, the United States. But it clearly could have worked against Burundi, Rwanda, Myanmar, and a lot of smaller countries with populations of seven to nine million people. 
with armies that could not stand up to modern armies, provided that they're not backed by powerful neighbors like China. It's interesting that you bring up um, China because, you know, right now there's a genocide going on against the Uyghur people in Xinjiang. Uh, or Xinjiang. Um, so, you know, it's obviously China being, you know, as almost as powerful as a nation as you can get is very hard to, you know, put pressure on them to end it. So how would you sort of put pressure on the counter of the genocide in China right now? But one of the peaceful tools that could be used against a powerful country like China is to selectively boycott products produced by slave labor, by Uyghur slave labor. And it's a lot of products, and many of them in the textile and clothing industry, because uh, the Uyghurs produce at least, I think, a quarter of the cotton that's produced in China, and maybe even more. And so uh, converting that China into textiles in Xinjiang, etc., is a big, big business. And a lot of uh, Western consumers are buying clothing from companies that are, in fact, guilty of employing slave labor in their uh, Uyghur labor in their factories under Chinese government direction. So we could boycott those products. And there's a movement that's just starting to do that. That's one tool. I guess this kind of leads us to the further question is what further methods or you know, reforms should be used to prevent genocides? And what can we ourselves do as individual citizens of Western countries um, to prevent genocides? The United Nations has proved highly ineffective in preventing genocides. And I think that's largely because the authoritarian states have an interest in perpetrating more genocides, so they're not cooperating. And the de- democracies are led by men and women whose time horizon is the next national election, or sometimes even the next regional election, two years away. And that short-run view of what's important and what needs to be done that two-year time horizon, which winds up being a one-year time horizon, when you look at all the fundraising they have to do to be elected the next time, is counterproductive. And until we have leaders in the Western democracies who adopt a much more principled stand and a much more sophisticated definition of their nation's national interest, which projects a five-year or a 10-year time horizon instead of a one or two-year time horizon, we are not going to solve this problem. We are not going to get the participation of the major Western states. And if you asked me, can you give me some examples of effective genocide prevention? I'm limited, or even mass atrocity prevention, including crimes against humanity, not just genocide. I'm only able to give you a couple of examples. And one of them is a very uh, complicated example that was 
only half successful, and that's the case of Libya, where NATO intervened to prevent Gaddafi from annihilating the population of Benghazi, but did not imagine putting troops on the ground and assuring that new militias would not arise to fight over the oil and the wealth of Libya. I mean, the idea that you could eliminate the government of Gaddafi and then walk away and you wouldn't face major sequential problems that would threaten new mass atrocities is a joke. Uh, it, It clearly was not a well-planned operation and Western nations were not interested in looking farther ahead, just beyond their navels. And so we got the Libya of today, which is in the midst not only of a civil war, but a multi-cornered civil war with many, many different militias, some now backed by Turkey, by Egypt, by Russia, Uh, by France, you name it. So, you know, things went from bad to worse, you might say, in the case of Libya. I think it's very important to recognize that real leadership will educate people in Western countries that we have to commit resources in the long run to regain the security and stability that we forged by doing that during the Cold War. We we don't get all this for nothing. So your generation can do a great deal to educate politicians and to show politicians they care about the future 10 years and 20 years from now and having children who have a future. Because if you don't, I don't think we're gonna have much of a future. Um, okay, so now we're going to move into, let's say, let's move into RTP, which is responsibility to protect, which is like, so basically, how can we prevent genocide? What's it, let's, so, so genocide prevention, Greg, is obviously one of the main responsibilities in the United Nations and of the international community, even without the presence of international institutions, it's a moral responsibility. But, uh, so preventing genocide is a very difficult thing because it requires you to violate sovereignty most of the time. You can't just sanction genocides out of existence usually. You have to invade or depose a government or group that's carrying out something or force a government's hand into taking on a group that's trying to genocide another group. So, you know, that really will require a that really will require a violation of sovereignty. So, of course, you have the responsibility to protect, as we've learned, which is, you know, specifically the principle that you have the responsibility to violate sovereignty in order to uh, protect people from genocide. Now, do you think that this violation of sovereignty should be, you know, a thing? Do you think that really uh, Westphalian isolation should be respected in, in effect that uh, countries should in general respect each other's affairs unless, you know, outside affairs are simply making that country itself weaker 
some more like a realist perspective. Because I, I say there's a moral responsibility, even more than a realist yeah. responsibility to you know preserve your own nature, and even moral responsibility to preserve people. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not to cut you off, but I think that when you think of the social contract between citizens and government, and citizens having the responsibility to overthrow a government that is violating their natural rights, obviously during a genocide, the government would be violating the natural rights of citizens, but that government is also dehumanizing them to a degree where they cannot stand up for themselves and depose that government. And because of that, you could interpret um, the social contract in a way that someone else has to come in and depose the government in order to preserve the natural rights of all the citizens of the nation. Now, I know you yourself are a little uh, – you kind of doubt war's efficacy at creating change in nations. I say that war is actually a very effective tool. Yep. But in I this know case, it- war is absolutely warranted. Well, I think that has to do a lot with how America is right now in the 21st century, where even the simplest of actions take an extreme amount of political capital, and thus America often can't create a unified response in government to its own issues. So that's not a general thought that I have, but when thinking practically – Um, We have to realize that sometimes the government won't be able to take care of things once the war is finished. But if governments were able to actually work together and were able to create a unified response internationally and um, within the government itself, then I don't think that would be a problem. Let's think about it like institutions-wise. I don't know if the UN is the right way to implement R2P. I don't. I think the UN. I don't want to say it's it's cucked, but the UN is certainly strapped down. I think that the way which R2P must be implemented is not really unilaterally or multilaterally though. It, it should be through an international institution, but there should be an international institution which is like the last resort institution. It exists to prevent genocide, to defend us from like alien invasion, to like create a, you know, to create a, a global way of punishing super aggressive states and that's it. I think we need an institution which is basically just a responsible, protective institution, which is so well respected that nations will listen to it and really isn't tied down by the UN. The fact that the UN has its hands tied by its structure that was you know, designed in yeah. the 1940s. And I, I agree with you because I like that you bring you brought up respect because often the UN cannot convince its member states that a genocide is actually going on. Um, they're not able to they're not able to make different nations adopt the label of genocide for a certain event, and thus those nations no longer have a responsibility to protect the citizens of the nation under question. And so they'll just sit around and do nothing because they, they don't want to expend their own 
their diplomatic capital and their military strength to um, to fix an issue that frankly does not affect them, even though it should on a moral level, because obviously, great quote, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Although I wouldn't say that um, it doesn't affect them, because at least in my view... Uh, well, maybe their, their utility cost for not acting would be a net positive for them, even if it's a net negative for the rest of yeah. the world. Well, uh, so it's like a collective action issue, yeah. except on Although, an international level. I, I think, really, you can't underestimate how bad a genocide could be just for inter- for international stability because of things like refugees from the genocide, from wars caused by it. Like, or, if the, or if the country committing the genocide is some kind of economic power destroying a large part of their population and possible labor force. That could definitely undermine the strength of the global economy, obviously. But I think one of the best examples is in Sudan, of the genocide in Sudan, that created so many refugees that basically disrupted almost all of Africa. It helped disrupt an already unstable Somalia. We had you know piracy, and we had a refugee crisis that spread for all throughout, even to Europe and to the Americas. Yes, absolutely. And obviously, the UN was not able to handle that genocide in an effective way, at least not in a timely manner. So, in terms of your in terms of your proposal for a special international organization, obviously that obviously that description is, is a little bit bare bones if one if one was to actually think about what that organization would look like then it would be a lot more difficult. But the general idea of having an international organization that's actually effective in preventing genocides is obviously a good thing if it worked out the way that you thought it would work out in theory. What can we do ourselves, like as individuals, to prevent genocide? What are like the causes we can donate to the the political initiatives that, or the political initiatives that we can aspire to help promote? What are some things you can do as individuals to prevent genocides? One concrete example. It's almost like a little miracle. Uh, About a year ago or so, the United States Congress and the President of the United States passed legislation, and the legislation was signed into law by President Trump under the Elie uh, Wiesel Act. The Elie Wiesel Act provides for institutional change within the United States government to train new State Department officers to recognize when the triggers of genocide are emerging. It trains them to begin to work with the leaders in the countries that they serve in as U.S. diplomats to intervene, to try to remove those triggers or to create 
new programs to counter those triggers. And it also institutionalizes a very important uh, committee of the U.S. government, of the executive branch, within which the principles of all of the major intelligence agencies, together with the military and the National Security Council, convene under the authority of the National Security Council on a regular basis, at least monthly, but often more often than that, to share intelligence, to give each other heads ups and alerts on mass atrocity crime situations that are beginning to evolve and could still be interdicted or stopped, and to pool their resources and their advice so that the president is given heads ups in time for the United States to build coalitions to stop those mass atrocities from coming to fruition. Now, no member of Congress and no president is going to embrace this act and all of its many parts unless voters make it an issue in the 2020 election and the 2022 election, the 2024 election, and demand an accounting from whoever is running for office or whoever has held office of how well they've implemented the Elie Wiesel Act under their watch. A sufficiently sized group of a sufficiently determined people can do anything, great evil and great good. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's very important to remember that it has to be a, a personal decision by all of us. And it's one of those grave and yet great personal decisions we can make to prioritize genocide prevention as a number one you know, priority amongst human humanity and human governments. Because to be honest, there's no reason to view a border or as another person as deserving less protection. And the number one priority of the modern just state should be to ensure the most simple of freedoms to people, which is the freedom to not be genocided. I, I couldn't agree more, Josh. You put it very well. And in effect, you have scaled up Hannah Arendt's uh, axiom on this issue. Uh, there, there's nothing that dedicated and well-informed people can't do if they cooperate with each other and are determined and stay persistent and courageous. Uh, I, I also think that uh, we have to acknowledge that up until now, uh, we haven't really learned the lessons of the evolution of Western society and the develop and the growth of what's called tolerance uh, in in 16th and 17th century England, for example, where. Uh, Catholics and Protestants had to learn to get along for the first time without murdering each other and to build a state which could accommodate the religious views of people who considered the other side heretics and traitors, but then live in the same country within the same boundaries under the same government. 
And it took uh, John Mills, it took people in the eight, later in the 18th century, in the 19th century, and it took a long time. But eventually they did learn how to do it. And I, so this is a learning process we're all part of. And uh, we need more people to join us in that learning process. Hopefully we shall. That's what we're trying to do here at Think Critical Podcast. So thank you, Dr. Chalk, for joining us today on the show. And we wish you good luck and good health and fight the good fight. Really delighted uh, to be part of your podcast uh, series. And I, I am very happy that you share the concerns that uh, many of us who are a lot older than you uh, have been working on. And uh, we hope that we're passing the torch to uh, people with many, many years ahead of them and many insights ahead of them. So good luck with that job. Um, so let's move on to like personal moral responsibility. Why do we have a moral responsibility to prevent genocide? Um, so I say the reason why we have a moral responsibility to prevent genocide is that each human is, you know, a dignified thing. We are autonomous. We aren't always brought to inclination. This is a little bit of a Kantian thing. I'm not, I'd say I'm a utilitarian. I'm a, I'm a rule utilitarian in practice, but in theory, uh, I like a lot of Kantian ethic, ethics and a lot of Kantian theory. Um, so I'd say that you know we, we are all uh, dignified creatures capable of being stoic and rational, and that gives us you know a special privilege. But we can only retain this special privilege if we protect everybody else and we make sure that everybody else can have this dignity. So if people's dignity are being violated. You know, via oppressive laws, then we kind of lose our own collective, you know, moral standing. So we have a responsibility to protect everyone and make sure everyone is free and autonomous. Because one, if one person is not free, then the rest of us are slightly less free. And that really adds up. Yes, I absolutely agree with you that all humans have intrinsic value. I think that it sets an extremely bad precedent when either people are treated as not human or as humans that have less intrinsic value than other humans. Yeah. Um, I mean, in terms of like each of the moral systems, the only moral system that doesn't, you know, dictate that you prevent genocide is basically egoism. And I will never, ever, ever egoism think... Egoism is... Yeah, I'll never think highly of egoist. Yeah. Egoists are, I mean, I don't say it's disgusting, but it's kind of horrifying to me. At least normal egoism. Like, ethical egoism kind of makes sense to me where it's like, yes, um... You know, maintaining ethical standard benefits you, so you got to do it. But an egoist is just like, I can do what I want because it's only about me. It, it disgusts me, really. And y- even if it makes sense that um, you should be free to do what you want, there is a limitation to the point where you have to maintain a respect of other people or else you will be destroyed yourself. And part of that respect is to protect other people when they're in danger. Well, yeah, because egoism, I feel like egoism is just not based in reality. It almost acts as if they're as if each person is its own separate entity that doesn't interact with anyone else and that if that one person is quote unquote happy at any 
other person's expense that somehow society is better, which is obviously incorrect. Yeah, I mean, the only convincing argument, I think, for we are an island is the idea that if someone's born apart from society, they shouldn't be forced into society. Like, if you're a dude living on a mountain somewhere and you've already paid all your taxes, you should be left alone. But that, oh, but, but that doesn't necessitate that the state you, you inhabit or contribute to shouldn't use your money for prevention of genocide because it should be one of the highest moral responsibilities, even transcending party or ideology to prevent genocide. Um, like if the Holocaust was going on right now, I wouldn't care right or left. Um, you know, whatever party um, was the one the most devoted to stopping the Holocaust would be the party I'd be part of. Absolutely. So, since we're towards the end of our talk, let's talk about what we've concluded. First of all, genocide. An extremely immoral, disgusting, horrifying thing. I think anyone who's watching this will know that. Um, if you don't think that genocide is a bad thing, um, I don't know what to tell you. Just, like, go, go live on a mountain, like Josh said. And then, second of all, each individual person and each nation has a responsibility to defend the citizens of a nation against a genocidal government based on all systems of determining morality. And finally, the UN or any international organization that is created to stop genocide needs to do a better job of preventing and stopping genocide when it occurs than the UN is doing right now. Yeah, okay. Uh, and I'd also add on that we've certainly learned that R2P has been a very effective tool and is a really well-written tool for prevention of genocide that we should adhere to a standard more. And that, in general, um, there's more genocide going on than you think, and it's an older institution than you think. And it's really our job to be the generation that ends genocide. And we had the tools to do it, we just need to be a little bit more focused. Thank you for listening to the Think Critical Podcast. As always, you feel free to reach out to us or to offer comments or creative criticism. We will love to hear from you. Additionally, stay tuned for our upcoming episodes coming out shortly. As always, think critically. Music credits to Kevin McLeod and Wikimedia Commons.